Stay, stay standing when I pray. So Lord, may that be my, our prayer today. Today of all days that we may sense this thing where our world is strangely dimmed. Everything that belongs in this world in comparison to Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we all together declare that yours is the glory. Thank you for your grace. We praise you and we acknowledge, especially today, that you are the Lord of all lords. You are the King who came to die for us. And you are therefore the King of all kings. And so Lord, we commit this time to you. May you speak to us through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat, and I'd like to welcome you uh, here this morning. My name's Danny, and over the last few weeks, we've been journeying together as a community on this idea of does God suffer, the, the suffering of God. Uh, hello to you if you're watching, wherever you are, and if you're going to listen to this later on, then welcome to you too. Does God suffer? That has been the question. If you want to consider what a suffering look, God looks like, then a book of Jeremiah is a good example of this, and we explored this last Sunday. It gives us a picture, an Old Testament picture of God's pain-filled heart, a pain that was brought about by His people that kept rejecting Him. But there's something more profound we discovered in Jeremiah than simply reading how God is describing His pain. Jeremiah finds that it's not just all about God sharing in the suffering of his people. There's another dimension, and that is that Jeremiah himself is called to share in the suffering of God who is grieved for his people. So God is not afraid to share in our suffering. And we concluded last week with this idea that neither is he afraid of inviting us into his suffering. But there's no greater picture, and we've been singing about that picture today, no greater picture of God's pain than what we find in the New Testament, fast forward some years, that is, in the life and the death of Jesus. So I want to focus specifically on one moment, one scene in the final stages of Jesus' life and death. And in Matthew we read these words, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Why did Jesus say this? What did he mean when he said that God had abandoned him? That's another word for forsaken. What kind of God are we talking about here? And this is a tough question. How is it possible that the father would walk away from his own son during the worst possible time? In order to answer these questions, let's go back to an earlier scene. So before Jesus was arrested, he's made his way to a quiet place to pray, that is, to talk to his Father. And we read these words. 
Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. A a, a few verses later, we read, He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may you will be done. It's so neat and tidy when we read it like this, this scene. I, I, I doubt Jesus was offering a simple, reflective, quiet prayer. By himself, he's probably saying, no, 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 there has to be a better way, Father. Please, not me. He was on the ground, on his face, probably crying out to God. Jesus was in pain, but he didn't want to be. He was facing not only death, he was facing God's wrath, his punishment for a disobedient people. He was facing the implications of being our representative and taking God's wrath upon himself, the fifth cup. But he didn't want to do it. Think about that. The pain and the burden of dying for a broken world was not for him to endure. Jesus didn't deserve it. The heart of his pain wasn't so much the fact that he had to die, but that he could do something about not dying, yet choosing to die anyway. That's his pain. A while later, when they came to arrest Jesus, we read this uh, interesting verse where he said, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. This is Jesus' reality. He exemplifies what it means to live self-sacrificially. And I would say that this is the truest form of his suffering. Despite being able to do something about his situation, all the power, all the authority, all the glory are his, despite all those things, he chooses to not act. So when he is eventually hanging on the cross and calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing the brokenness of the world and what it feels like to be abandoned by God. Now these words that he cries out are the exact same words of a psalm, Psalm 22. And the first two verses read like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Such was Christ's humanity at this point that he quoted a passage from his psalm in you. Let me turn it over to you. When life is tough, if you believe in Jesus, how's how's God's word sitting with you? Is that a place you turn to 
when things are not going well? Jesus certainly did. But he just does something remarkable here. It's not only um, that, but a psalm, he somehow uh, knows that it is about himself. Jesus Christ experienced abandonment from God so that you and I wouldn't have to. But it wasn't God's absence in his life that he found excruciating. It was the absence of God in his entire creation as a result of sin. God was with his very own son right there hanging on the cross. In the same way that God was with the psalmist when he wrote these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the same way that God is here in my darkest times, even though I may feel like he isn't. So I wonder, do you know this God? Do you know this God who became a man so that he wouldn't carry, so he could carry the burden of the entire world, so that you and I wouldn't have to carry it? In other words, do you know Jesus or do you know Jesus? I want to pick up this theme again from last week. In Spanish, there are two words to distinguish uh, what in English we say as to know. The first word for knowing is saber. And um, I'm told that in other languages, there are um, similar words as well, French, German, and so on. This has to do with knowing something, knowledge that you gain, something that you know to be true based on your experience. The second word, though, for knowing is conocer. You don't use this as a way to talk about knowledge, you, you, but to talk about knowing someone. So you don't saber a friend, you conocer a friend, if that makes sense. So when I'm asking, do you know Jesus or do you know Jesus, what I'm trying to get at is differentiating between knowing Jesus as a cool idea that suits how you live your life or knowing Jesus in such a way that compels you to surrender your life so that his name is known. Not my name, not your name, his name. But you know, I don't want to dismiss saber just yet. You know why? Because I think that saber leads to conocer, especially when we're talking about the suffering of Jesus Christ. Saber is in the same family as another word, a word that plays a very special role around the Christian practice of communion. Or another word for communion is Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. That word is sabor. Saber and sabor have the same Latin origin and are closely linked, even though they mean different things. Language is so cruel, yet so beautiful at the same time. My mum is here, and I didn't expect her to be here. Hi, mum. Because I was going to tell you a story. <laughs> didn't you have a church service to go to? It's not really a long story. Language is cruel yet beautiful at the same time. And when we were living in Spain, mum tells the story that she went into a shop and she asked for a kilo of sand rather than a kilo of flour. And it's so cruel because one is arena, the other one is arena. One vowel, that's it. In four or five letters, six letters, one vowel is different. So that's what I mean. It's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, you love hearing languages and so on, but it can be so cruel and 
I'm sorry. <laughs> you already know that saber is to know, but what does sabor mean? What does sabor mean? It means to taste. It means to flavor. It means to be tasty. In fact, it's used in such a way that you could say something is good only because you've tasted it. So when I ask this question, whether you know Jesus or you know Jesus, the first saber, or the sabor, leads to conocer. And the reason I can make this claim, okay, is because of Psalm 34, verse 8, says these words, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who takes refuge in him. Now, this is David who wrote this psalm. David uh, was writing from a position of experience. On the verge of death, he was being persecuted. He was being hunted. In his suffering, he came to know God in a way that was different to maybe previous occasions. And let me read uh, Psalm 34 begins with the first seven verses. I will extol the Lord at all times. Remember, he's suffering at this point. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. The, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of his troubles. And then he makes a switch. David takes this psalm in a new direction. He invites the reader to consider what he's just experiencing, and he says these words, taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing God's goodness doesn't only come when things are right, when things are all in the right place. It's an invitation to come to Him during the darkest times in our lives. And the reason I can taste God's goodness is because of his brokenness. What a contradiction that is. Christianity has to be surely the only religion in the world, the only faith in the world that claims that the reason a God can help us is because he's broken, because he suffered. How counter-religious that idea is. And yet that's our Christian story. That's our faith. The reason I can taste God's goodness is because of his brokenness. Now, how can something taste good if it always tastes good? Think about that. How can, always, how can you say, oh, this is good, when it's always good? It's another way of saying, how do you know if it's good unless you've tasted something bad? Is it possible that tasting and seeing God's goodness and his love, and his grace, and his mercy for me is because he has tasted something profoundly bad. Christy and I um, had a chance to travel before we had kids. We went to Spain, and we traveled around Spain. We hired a car, and by this stage, we'd been three weeks on the road, and um, I had this, I had been feeling a bit off, for a few days, but after a terrible toilet experience, <laughs> at the back of a small, dark, I will say pub, but it's in Spain, you've got to understand that the pubs or bars are different communal spaces than we would have here. 
um, you, you, have, you spend a lot of time there, all good food is, is found there. So I was, the, I was in the toilet at the back of this dark pub, up in the mountains somewhere, when I tried to eat, I realized that I was getting sicker. By the time we got to Madrid, I was really ill. And in fact, I don't remember much about the next 36 hours. I remember I had to drive, we had to drive out of the city. Parking is terrible in major capital cities in Spain. And so what we had to do, we were staying in the city. We had to drive our car out into some suburbs and then catch the train uh, back because we were living near a place called Plaza Mayor, which you see a photo here. We were just around the corner from this beautiful place. By the way, this is on a quiet day. You should see it on a, on a busy day. So on the train, drive, um, uh, we were, after dropping the car off, I felt so ill. I mean, this is the th- type of thought that you have, I'm going to die. I, I just, it just feels awful. Christy was holding me upright, and I eventually crashed on the bed in our accommodation. What was significant about these particular days was not the agony I was in, that was pretty awful, but what happened on the other side. We had no food to eat, and my appetite was, I was starting to feel, feel good now, and my appetite was back. We had no food, and I could hard, but I could hardly move. I was so weak. So Christy ventured out at night in Madrid with no Spanish and got us some dinner. Now, what did she bring? <laughs> Something called a bocadillo de tortilla. A bocadillo de tortilla, it tasted absolutely amazing, and there's a photo of it right there for you. Now, what's a bocadillo? Now, I'll explain some of the ingredients in a bocadillo, and as you can see, there's lots of ingredients in there. It's basically a piece of bread cut in half, and you put uh, what they call an omelette or a potato egg-type omelette, and it's made nice and thick, and you wedge it in in the middle of the bread, You put some mayonnaise normally, but before you do that, you may cut a tomato in half and you just scrape the the slice of bread, you scrape the tomato with that, throw the tomato out, you've got some nice flavor. Now, we're not, the Spaniards aren't like the French, right? They have a baguette, you know, and they have a, a, what do they call it, an omelette, you know. You know what Spanish call the baguette? Bread. (laughs) We're not posh. They're not posh. So it's literally, bocadillo de tortilla is just literally an, uh, a, t- a t- uh, you know, potato, an egg in a piece of bread. And it was amazing. It tasted so good. Now, did this particular bocadillo have some special ingredients than others? No. You can buy one of these anywhere you go, at a, at a, at a bar or at a particular restaurant out on the street maybe, anywhere you go in Spain, and it tastes pretty much the same. What made it good was what we'd been through. The bocadillo was good. So let's come back to Jesus. I want to go back in time yet again. We've been with Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've been with Jesus a little bit earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's he's trying to plead with God to take this cup away. But let's go back to another scene before. And this is the scene of the Last Supper. And you can imagine the disciples' surprise when Jesus, while they were eating together, took the bread, turned to them and said, Take it, 
this is my body. Not take it as in a shopping bag or take some keys. In this instance, taking meaning eat it. So he's saying, eat it, this is my body. God is taking the psalmist's words to, the, to a whole nother level. The context of Jesus' statement is important. So let's, let's read in Luke 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover is a Jewish feast to remember God's deliverance from is, uh, for the Israelites from uh, uh, slavery. And this is what Jesus and his disciples were celebrating. But Jesus was eagerly desiring to eat this with them. Why? Think about Jesus' life. Jesus would have eaten many, many times with his disciples. Not only that, but as a Jew, he would have known and participated in this Passover in previous years. So why was this different? This is where the feast, uh, where Jesus becomes the feast. The feast he sat down to eat with his disciples, he now turned it and made it about himself. So where once upon a time in Exodus, the lamb from Exodus onwards, the lamb was eaten, sacrificed, and then eaten at Passover, Jesus is now saying, I am the lamb. John the Baptist prophesied this. When he saw Jesus early in his ministry, what did he say? Here comes the lamb of God. Let's read in Mark 14. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, eat it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when they had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Not only was this feast significant for his disciples, it is significant still for us today. Jesus then, uh, Jesus then commanded them to keep doing this in remembrance of me. And it's something we keep on doing until he returns. So how about it? Let's do that now. I've asked the serving team to pass the trays around that have two elements, the biscuit and some juice. What I'm going to ask you to do, though, and make sure you're listening, is don't take it just yet. Don't eat it. Take the biscuit, take the cup, and hang on to these elements. Because what I want to do, I want us to all eat and drink together all at once. So take the biscuit, take the juice, and hold on to these. Good Friday. We are invited today to continue to remember him, but not just his death, okay, his life as well. Everything about him. What we want to do is we want to remember his teaching. We want to remember his example. We want to remember his commandments and, we, we, and how to live our life in this kingdom that he was talking about. Everything about him we remember. Now, a, a common practice for us in our community is to celebrate communion every Sunday. So what a great opportunity we have to focus on something about Jesus every time we celebrate communion. Not just his death, 
But what about his life? What about the things he said? What about the things he taught? What about how he treated each other? It's an opportunity to focus on all these different elements, but then it's also an opportunity for us to look at each other in community and saying, how are you going? Or more importantly, how am I going with you? Is there something that you and I need to clarify? Is there a misunderstanding between you and me? Jesus introduced a new idea in this supper. It wasn't just about himself and the sacrifice that he paid. He turns it around and now becomes about the body of believers. That's us. So the feast is not just about Jesus becoming the feast. It's about his followers becoming part of the feast as well. At a later point, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body. So communion makes real the presence of Jesus both in these elements, but also in the body of the believers. Jesus is here among us. The church becomes the body of Christ. And this is the body Jesus continues to use as his presence in the world, but in not only properly the body when it exists as a gift and sustenance for others. It's only properly the body when it exists for the sustenance of others. This means that for the sake of others, the church, the body, us, you, me, will suffer in order to fulfill God's mission in the world in the same way that Jesus suffered in order to fulfill God's mission for the world. For this reason, we are able to say that we who worship a suffering God, get that, we who worship a suffering God are the ones who are called to suffer in community. So let us remember and celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through communion. Have you got mine there? Thanks, man. So at this point, we acknowledge together as a community that this biscuit that we're about to take has been broken to share in the body of Christ. We, who are many, are one body, for we all share in the one biscuit, the bread. So may the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Take and eat this biscuit in remembrance that Christ ate for you and feed on him in your heart by faith and thanksgiving. Let us eat together, taste and see the Lord is good. May the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's drink together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me finish with this prayer. Gracious God, 
Thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of this body and this blood of our Savior, that Savior we name, Jesus Christ. Father, I want to thank you for assuring us of your goodness. Thanks so much for your love and that we are living members of your body. Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice now through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your Spirit to live and work to your praise, to your glory. Thank you for your love. Amen.